Father, help us to see uh, the signs that Jesus did in their right way. Help us to see what they point to and not to get the wrong end of the stick about him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a sermon about getting the wrong end of the stick concerning Jesus. From time to time, I hear reports about perceptions of Christianity, and people might say, look, I don't like organised religion. I don't like the institutional church. I don't like Christians too much. But Jesus, he's all right. In fact, I quite like him. He's good. So people have this idea that the man Jesus is admirable. He's on about love and he's against pride and hypocrisy and he's a this non-violent, kind of radical guy, but a bit of an outsider, but he's attractive. On the other hand, his followers, well, they can be trouble. And the trouble is they're not enough like Jesus, basically. I don't know if you've heard reports like that, but I hear them from time to time. Well, in his day, Jesus was divisive actually very divisive polarizing many were electrified by his words and deeds and found him a kind of attractive compelling figure but there was always a gallery of critics john's gospel points this out consistently if you read through it you'll see this and in john 10:19 just to give you an example after jesus talks about laying down his life for his sheep and taking it up again we read this again the jews were divided because of these words many of them were saying he has a demon he's out of his mind why listen to him others were saying these are not the words of one who has a demon can a demon open the eyes of the blind as Jesus had done. Now, the Pharisees, who were a theological party within Judaism of the day, and the Jerusalem hierarchy of priests were generally in the anti-Jesus camp. They were generally his critics. Uh, After Jesus had been to the temple and driven out the money changers and the spies and sellers of goods, there had been a very kind of public protest at their stewardship of the temple, at the way they ran it, what they permitted to go on. And so there were perhaps reasons why the Pharisees might not be the biggest fans of Jesus and the, the, the temple authorities. In their eyes, having done this provocative thing, he was an upstart, an upstart Galilean up from the north, a kind of hick with no right to make outlandish claims, the outlandish claims that he was coming to Jerusalem for the festivals and making. I am the light of the world, he said. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink, he said. I am the good shepherd, he said. Well, they thought about him, look, this guy is a Sabbath breaker. He doesn't keep the law. He's a rebel against God and his holy law. He's a deceiver. He's trying to draw people after him by saying these things, but he's, he's really not for God. He's for himself. He's a sinner. You should see the company he keeps. He's demon-possessed. Listen to him rave. He is a blasphemer. He claims to be equal with God. If you've read through the Gospel, you'll find all these things said about Jesus. And I guess his critics said, if he has uncanny powers, well, they're not from the Lord. 
Following the Lazarus incident, which we read about in John 11, which we heard the end of, I think uh, it seems clear it was felt that a discussion of the Jesus problem had to take place at the highest level. And so in verse 47, we read that the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin is the Jewish ruling council. Uh, It's in Jerusalem. It had maybe 70 members. It's responsible for Jewish affairs in Judea, which was a Roman province. So this council looked after internal affairs under Roman oversight. And the family of the high priest dominated the Sanhedrin and the high priest himself presided. Now, we get a little snippet of these proceedings. Firstly, in verse 47, John reports the problem. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. So the problem, as they see it, is the threat of a popular uprising catalyzed by faith in Jesus. People believe in him, there's going to be trouble. And if there's trouble, the Romans are going to show up and deal with it. This is the the tricky task the Sanhedrin had. They had to preserve, on the one hand, as much Jewish integrity and independence as possible, given the conditions of Roman rule. Messianic figures urging rebellion against the Roman overlords and a, a renewal of Jewish independence would bring Roman armies in to crush these uprisings. And perhaps for the Romans to say to the the Sanhedrin, the high priest, well, you didn't do a very good job of dealing with this, so we're going to turf you out and put some other people in who are going to do a better job. But the worst case scenario would be the loss of the temple, that the Romans would, would sack the city, pull down the temple, burn it, and that the Jews would lose all independence altogether, their entire nationhood. And all this did actually happen in AD 70. All their worst fears were realised. These were not imaginary fears. The way to prevent a popular outsider leading crowds into the disaster was to neutralise the outsider. This is 49, one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up, you know nothing at all. You do not realise that it is better for you that one man die than, uh, for the people than the whole nation perish. So Caiaphas, he's not squeamish. While others are there wringing their hands and saying, what are we to do? He tells it like it is. How can the nation and the temple be weighed against the life of one rogue Galilean? Grow up, everyone. You know, he needs to go down. And we need to find a way to do it that kills not just him, but all his popular appeal. We can't have him dying a kind of martyr's death that just galvanises his followers. What we need is for him to be disgraced in the eyes of the people. And we aren't told, you know, you might be asking, and I think it's a fair question, how, what did they really think about the signs? I mean, they, they say he's doing these signs and Lazarus has come out of the tomb and why don't they kind of take that more seriously, you might think. Well, perhaps they, they kind of assume this is, this is a stunt. You know, Lazarus, 
It's an act. It's an arrangement. I mean, Jesus knew Lazarus and, and Martha and Mary. After all, they were all friends. Why couldn't they have cooked this up somehow? Perhaps they thought that. Who knows? We're not told. But they're certainly not open to the idea that these signs point to Jesus as being from God. So Caiaphas speaks as a hard-headed ruler, ready to spend one life to save many others, ready to spend one life to preserve the Lord's temple and the Lord's priesthood. But there's another thing here that John adds. John adds that Caiaphas also spoke, not just as a hard-headed ruler, but as an unwitting prophet. Verse 51, he did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So when Caiaphas said that this one man should die for the people, he meant that for the sake of protecting the people from their own foolish belief in Jesus, their own disastrous belief in Jesus, Jesus should die. That's what he meant. But his words might be understood in a different way, in the way that Christians came to understand Jesus' death. That Jesus died for the people as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist called him in John 1.29. That is, that Jesus would die as a sacrifice for our sins. As someone who would, by his death, reconcile us to God. By his death, lift God's displeasure from us. By his death, bring us into relationship with God. Or, that Jesus would die for the people as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. The image here is of a ruler, a king, who protects his people from death at the cost of his own life, who goes out to meet the enemies who threaten the life of his people, but who dies in the, in the, uh, the labour of protecting them. As a shepherd might face the wolf or the bear and be killed, but the sheep survive. This is the way that Christians have understood Jesus' death to be for us. Here is God's divine and marvellous manner of working in the world. What Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin thought, intended, planned and did was completely wrong-headed. If ever there was the wrong end of the stick to grab hold of, they grabbed hold of it. They grabbed it good and proper. But as ruthless, as mistaken, as blind and unseeing, as perverse as they may have been in doing this, their actions served God's plan. What Caiaphas did with one meaning and purpose, God used for another meaning and purpose, his meaning and purpose. That Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. And this idea of the scattered children of God evokes you know, what God had said earlier in the prophet Ezekiel, for example, about gathering the scattered. So let me read to you from Ezekiel 34, 11 to 13. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep 
and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out of the nations and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements of the land. So there's a vision of the scattered children of God, of the nation Israel being gathered. But John knows that God's plans to gather the scattered extend beyond the nation of Israel. He says, not only for that nation, but also Jesus would die for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. As Jesus had, had said in John 10:16, I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold, he said to the Jews. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now, I'm not a Jew, I'm not of the nation of Israel, and I suspect almost all of you are the same as me, not Jews by birth and descent. But God's good purposes have extended beyond the bounds of Israel and embraced all nations, all peoples. Ephesians 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you, you Gentiles, you non-Jews, you peoples of the world who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. His purpose, God's purposes, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. This is a grand and vast vision and labour and purpose and intention of Jesus' death. Right, Caiaphas, he looked at the world too narrowly. He allowed a prejudice to develop against Jesus, who was, to be sure, an unexpected figure. But Caiaphas got the wrong end of the stick entirely. When he analysed the situation in political terms, he did not understand what situation he was dealing with, which was a much bigger, deeper, spiritual situation and purpose of God. Two reflections on all this. One, people today might get the wrong end of the stick about Jesus. We might get the wrong end of the stick about Jesus. We uh, might think, like Caiaphas, Jesus is dangerous. And dangerous because of what his followers might do. These days, the problem with Jesus' followers is not so much their potential for uprising and bringing down the wrath of the Romans, but perhaps their potential to get in the way of a new and better world, a new social consensus, a kind of post-Christian thing that's forming. And Christians are troubled because they're retrograde. They're stuck in old prejudices and old beliefs. They're not optimistic enough about humanity. They're not signed up to the new religionless world that we all want. This might be the problem with Jesus' followers today. And that Jesus, therefore, in our modern context, will again have to go. The Jesus who says, do not judge and love your neighbour, he can perhaps stay, but we can't have the real Jesus, the Jesus who also said, I am the light of the world. And I am the way, the truth and the life. That Jesus will have to go. 
that Jesus must die. You see, Jesus has not actually stopped dividing opinion. He has not stopped provoking plans to discredit him and to get rid of him and his followers too. People still have very much the wrong end of the stick about Jesus. This is the wrong end of the stick. But we can always change the end of the stick we're holding. This is good news. And people do change their view about Jesus. Instead of saying a dangerous or deluded lunatic, instead of saying a legendary, embellished, fictional figure, people begin to encounter, as they read the scriptures, someone real, someone sane, someone expected to be sure, obscure at points, challenging very much so, but also lucid and humane, arresting, unique, alive and convincing. John notes that after the Lazarus incident in verse 45, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and seen what Jesus did believed in him. Many believed, some went to the Pharisees, but many believed. Jesus gave signs as he says, as even the Sanhedrin says, here's this man performing many signs. What were these signs supposed to point to? What's the right end of the stick to get? Well, Jesus said in his prayer, I thank you that you have heard me, Father. I know that you will always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Where's Jesus from? It's from God. How do we know? Because when he said, Lazarus, come out, Lazarus came out. That is what that signifies. Jesus Christ is not some first century messianic pretender, not a blasphemer, a disruptor who needed to be dealt with. No, he is from God. And not just for his time and place, but for all times, all places and all of us. Let me finish with uh, John 1, 11 and 12 where John prefigures all of this. He says, He, that is Jesus, he came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. And that offer is still open to us today. To all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, God will give us power and has given us power and has made us his children. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that we would not get the wrong end of the stick about Jesus, that when we think on his words and deeds, when we encounter him in the scriptures, that we would see who he was and what he did for what it is. That all these things show us that you have sent him to us. That he has died for us, for all of us. And that the way is therefore open through him for us to become children of God, gathered together, one in a fellowship of love and joy and peace 
in the Holy Spirit. Father, help us to enter and enjoy and live out this fellowship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.